And now please pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, Easter is behind us. My lilies are still blooming in the house. We are moving into the Easter season. The lectionary for the Easter season gives us a chance to look at the book of Acts, which is the account of the early church that was written by the same person who wrote the Gospel of Luke. We get the opportunity to trace what happens to the disciples following Easter morning. And our first reading is this short summary of life in the early church. What a church this must have been! Our passage says that the church is all of one heart and one soul. Everyone gets along perfectly. When they gather together, they're nothing but smiles and rainbows and hugs, glitter. A visitor comes and people are like, hey, here, please sit in my pew. And then there's the sharing of possessions. Everyone sells their property and gives it to the clergy to distribute to all in the congregation. Everyone is provided for from the common purse. This is a socialist utopia. Karl Marx had nothing on the early church. Wow. I really must say that the early church was quite the place. I mean, I've never known of or heard of a church that's like that, but good for the apostles and those first Christians. It's interesting to read through various commentaries on this text. Joseph Fitzmaier, in his Anchor Bible Commentary on Acts, wrote, quote, Nothing is said about how long ownership of, of common ownership of property was so practiced, or even how widespread it was among Christians. Luke may well have been idealizing the situation. I think it's pretty safe to assume that that's an understatement. I don't know about you, but when I read through a text like this one, I can't help but be more than a little skeptical. Now, I know that the early Christians were great. I'm willing to grant that there were some pretty amazing people in that earliest church. But even with the best people, human nature tends to creep in. Humans are, are wonderful, fantastic, made in the image of God. But we can also be petty, jealous, stressed out, and not always at our best. And while I'd like to believe that the, that the early church was truly of one heart and soul and shared everything in common while singing Kumbaya, people tend not to work that way. Beyond our skepticism about human nature, there are other good reasons to doubt the historical accuracy of this text. For starters, in the verse that immediately follows our text, we read that Barnabas sold his land and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, if everyone was actually doing it, there would not have been reason to highlight Barnabas' sale of property. It would not have been special or, or unique, and there would have been other more significant ways to introduce to us Barnabas. Moreover, the verses after that relate the disturbing story of Ananias and his, wife, and his wife Sapphira, who hold back some of their property and then are promptly struck dead for having done so. If this truly was a universal sharing of property out of goodwill and love, then there would have been no need for a harsh and mythical punishment. We also read in chapter 6 
that there were issues with providing for widows and orphans in the community, which led to the creation of the first deacons. This, this was related to the differences in the community between Jewish and Greek Christians. So the summary text we have for today was almost certainly not a reflection of the reality of the early church. And there is another important element to consider. Luke wrote the book of Acts likely during the mid-80s AD, which is some 50 years after the events that he describes. Part of the purpose of Acts was to show what the early church was like and to inspire the church that Luke knew to be more like them. Usually, when an author dwells on something at length, as Luke does here with the sharing of possessions in common and the unity of the early church, he does so because the community that he was in was not doing those things. The text intentionally remembers an overly idealized past. Not only when money issues were not a concern, as I imagine they were for Luke's church, but when the early church shared everything in common. All of this brings us back in the here and now. What are we supposed to do with this summary of church life that we find in the earliest church? It almost certainly did not happen in reality. So is it of any value? I would say without a doubt. This text presents an ideal, something to aspire to. The goal is to be of one heart and soul and to share possessions in common so that everyone in the community is provided for. And I would argue that we need to hear this message now as, as much as ever before. In the United States, there is a strong and pervasive cult of the individual. We lift up individual achievements and those who embody the rugged individual ideal. The most consistently best-selling books are biographies, and for good reason. We want to hear the story of the hero or heroine. We want to be that person. The cult of the individual is especially strong here in Texas. We find it in the stories of early Texas and the life on the frontier. There are individuals who made, that made their own life out of the soil and their wits. We see it in the story of the great Texas ranches and the wildcatters who made the oil industry in Texas. And there are a lot of amazing things about the American cult of the individual. It does inspire people to start new businesses, try new ventures, make their own way in the world. So much of the greatness of America is rooted in this cult of the individual. But something has changed in American society. For so long, there were natural correctives to this cult of the individual. People could laud individual achievement, but they also belonged to churches and service clubs and unions. In Iowa, the traditional farm used to be 80 or 160 acres. Each town had its own community. The individual might have been an ideal, but there was the community there for support. Today, all of that has changed. Farms in Iowa are now 2,000 acres or more, and communities there don't exist like they used to. People, when they are members of churches, tend to belong to large churches that, has that have less of a sense of community and responsibility. Church membership is often seen from the perspective of a consumer 
and not someone who helps run the church and is intimately involved in that community. We're stuck behind our screens, our computers, and our TVs and our phones. And especially during this pandemic, people have been separated and many have felt lost. Now the cult of the individual says you should pick yourself up by the bootstraps, but that was, only, that was always only partly true. No one achieves success on his or her own. It always requires others, a community. The cult of the individual has come to dominate how we structure our society as well, oftentimes with bad consequences. The disaster of the winter storm in Texas shows what happens when the push for deregulation goes too far. Not everything should be about an, an unregulated market. There are times when we need to regulate on behalf of the community for the good of the community. We need better community-driven solutions to the crises of childcare and elder care in the US. There was a time when one income could support a family, which allowed one parent to stay home to help raise children. But now, with both parents working, those who don't make enough or have difficulty paying for, have, don't make enough have difficulty paying for childcare unless they have grandparents nearby who are willing to help. Now, this is a problem for all of us in society. What are we going to do as the boomer generation ages and needs access to affordable elder care? What's that gonna look like? When I read Acts 4, I see a bold call to look to the community. We need communities like FCC to balance out the cult of the individual. It's not about one or the other, but both and. We need community for society, but also for ourselves. We have an inherent need to belong to something and to have others beside us. Acts 4, our text for today, beckons us to this reality. But there's another thing that this text brings up for me. It speaks to the culture of scarcity. Economics is all about the distribution of limited goods in a society. Scarcity is what makes economics work. When there's not enough of a particular good to go around, we have to find a way to distribute it. The market can be a remarkably effective mechanism for the distribution of goods. But there's also a dark side to the culture of scarcity. For starters, the advertising industry is designed to make you want goods you never knew you needed. The advertising industry's aim is to create scarcity, to drive demand and therefore the market. What it does is to feed a mindset that there's never enough. You can never have a nice enough car or big enough house or fancy enough vacations. I remember when I was living in Iowa and we had a talk about this in the men's group. The older members of the group talked about when they were kids, their family only had one car and one TV if they were lucky. The houses they lived in were all under 2,000 square feet. Most people had shared bedrooms with their siblings when they were kids, and yet they never realized they were lacking. But when they spoke to their children, spoke about how their children or grandchildren would approach that same situation, they realized that they would never be happy with the limited things that they had growing up. When there is a constant air of scarcity, you want to keep as much as you can and to acquire more to satisfy the fear that there might not be enough. And that can cloud our perceptions of what we have. 
and make us fail to realize how much there actually is for everyone. And this is one profound message of Acts 4. Let's say everyone were to sell their goods and contribute them to a common purse for FCC. There would be more than enough to go around for everyone. The reality is that our little community has an abundance. And the same thing is true for our society at large. I mentioned in the in-person version of my Palm Sunday sermon how deeply I was moved about, by a recent documentary about Robert Kennedy. One thing that struck me again and again was how often RFK came back to the statement that we live in the wealthiest country that the world has ever known. He would repeat this truth and then ask how it was possible for children in the early 60s to be starving in the Mississippi Delta or in the Appalachian region of Eastern Kentucky or in Bedford-Stuyvesant in New York City. He kept reminding people that we don't live in a place of scarcity, but of abundance. We only have to decide what we want to do with that abundance as a community and as a nation. One particularly damning aspect of the U.S. today is that we cannot find a way to provide health care, affordable health care, for everyone in society. We are the only developed country in the world that has so many uninsured people, while at the same time, we spend far more on health care on a per capita basis. We have plenty of resources to provide health care for all. Those who claim otherwise, and there are plenty of people who do, they are factually incorrect. We can do it, but we have to decide that we want it. We have to put aside the culture of scarcity and choose a culture of abundance. We have to do what the early church did in Acts 4. There is enough for all. Because there's something else, about, there's something else that is dangerous about our culture of scarcity. Psychologists and researchers have shown that scarcity has an effect on our brains. That's right. Scarcity, particularly when it comes to basic food, clothing, shelter, and security, affects the chemicals and the development in our brains. Those who have been formed in an atmosphere of scarcity have a harder time making smart, long-term decisions about things. We see this quite frequently when trying to tackle the thorny issues around poverty. Researchers have noted time and again that people in poverty often make bad decisions when it comes to spending money and prioritizing needs. In the past, this led to criticizing of those who are poor. Why don't they save more? Why did you go buy that fancy cell phone? Why did you make this or that decision? What people have found is that long-term scarcity changes the part of your brain that regulates decision-making. The culture of scarcity harms us, but it can be different. It doesn't have to be that way. We can choose to reframe things from the perspective of abundance. The final thing we see in this text, beyond how it can balance out the cult of the individual and, challenge, and how it challenges the notion of scarcity, is that it speaks to the transformative power of a faith community that's being united. The community in Acts 4 is not simply a church that shares property in common, 
It is also one that was, quote, of one heart and soul. The community worked together. It worked as one. This is no easy feat for a church, particularly a congregational church. A church like FCC is run by the whole congregation. And that often means that it gets pulled in different directions with different priorities. Now, as I have mentioned before, and as you should all be aware, we are in the early stages of a visioning process at FCC. At the annual meeting this year, we all approved going through this visioning process. The visioning committee has been hard at work and starting this week, this week, we will invite you to give your input. The first stage of the visioning process is to identify what is the so-called kingdom concept for FCC. In other words, we want to discover the one thing that FCC can do better than any other church around. We want to discern where God is calling us as a community now so that we can be of one heart and soul. We will be asking you various questions that require you to name what are the biggest needs in the community? What are the unique gifts and talents here at FCC? And where the energy is at FCC so that we can put that vision into practice. Once we gather responses from as many of you as we can over the next month, we will present our proposed kingdom concept at a congregational meeting that will likely happen in early June. As you can probably tell, I am extremely excited about this prospect. If we want to be the congregation that we can be, we need to be committed to the same goal and motivated by that same goal. When that happens, there's no telling what we will be able to accomplish. Just look at the, what the early church was able to do beyond the idealized picture that we might have in our text. From an initial small group of disciples, the church grew and expanded throughout the Roman Empire. Although we are not going to do that, <laughs> we can have an outsized impact on our members and our community by being of one heart and soul. But this being of one heart and soul as a church requires more than being committed to the same goal. Recently, I was reading through an excellent book entitled The Five Dysfunctions of a Team by Patrick Lencioni. The book was written for a business environment, but its insights are equally applicable to churches. Lencioni argues that most companies and organizations do not live into up to their potential because they fail to work together as a team. One of those dysfunctions is a lack of commitment the team, the team members do not have clarity around where the organization is going and are not committed to a common end. Our visioning process aims to give us a common goal and focus on that together. But there are other things that we need to improve if we, if we want to be an effective team. The first is a lack of trust. For us to be of one heart and one soul, as the early church was in Acts 4, we have to trust one another. That means the ability to be vulnerable with one another. We have to be honest about our own strengths and weaknesses and trust the other members of the congregation. We also have to be able to engage in healthy conflict. I'm not saying we need to be arguing all the time, but we do need to feel free to engage in the issues that affect the church. 
We should not be afraid of contentious meetings because the right kind of conflict is needed if we're going to get the best ideas out of everyone. Another thing we need is accountability. This one is a tough one. We need to be able to challenge one another to follow through on what we promised. Now that is not easy to do with fellow church members, but when we can trust one another and be vulnerable with one another, it's far easier to hold one another accountable for the good of the organization. Finally, we need to be focused on results. As part of our visioning process, we'll develop metrics for how to measure our progress. If we really are committed to our vision, we need to be equally committed to following through on it together. Now, there's more that I'll say about Patrick Lencioni and the five dysfunctions of a team. But I wanted to lay out those concepts now because of how important our unity will be going forward. Acts 4 is an odd text. At first blush, we can be tempted to regard it as merely an overly idealized and perhaps even nostalgic view of the early church. The whole church of one heart and soul, please. The church sharing its possessions in common so it can provide for all? Really? But I hope we can get beyond those reservations and see the text for what it is. It is not a historical description of the early church, but it is a text that's meant to challenge our assumptions about church and what is possible. Churches can balance out the bad side of the cult of the individual by providing necessary community and support. We need that. The radical example of sharing possessions in common can help disrupt our assumptions about scarcity and see we actually have an abundance. So much is possible. We have what we need. And if we can be of one heart and soul, if we can truly work together as a team toward a common vision, there's no telling what we'll be able to do as a church. This is the Easter season. It's a time when we should dream about the post-resurrection church. Because God lives in us, so much is possible. The early church did transform the world. Maybe if we can learn from them, we can transform our little section of it.